Sir David Attenborough opened a climate summit in Glasgow with an appeal to preserve natural environments and biodiversity by addressing why we need them. Is this how our story is due to end? A tale of the smartest species doomed by that all-too-human characteristic of failing to see the bigger picture in pursuit of short-term goals. Nature is a key ally. Wherever we restore the wild, it will recapture carbon and help us bring back balance to our planet. But there was another major global conference that addressed protecting the natural world around the same time. You probably didn't hear of it. It was called the UN Biodiversity Conference, and it addressed species loss directly. Species loss leads to ecosystem collapse, which scientists say is of similar magnitude to climate change as a threat to life on the planet. So why hasn't the cause of biodiversity become as much a part of our consciousness as climate change has? Well, it may be that we just don't think of animals and plants as part of our world, but in a distinct realm of their own. That's why global biodiversity advocates are calling for forging a new relationship with nature in order to save it. Now, what might that look like? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. If we are going to slow the rapid loss of species, we must take to heart that species are deeply interconnected. But many people think of humans as somehow existing outside of nature. But we don't. In this episode, how we are connected within ecosystems, how your hands are nearly identical to a whale's front flippers, and surprising research into how trees approach caretaking like a family, a functional family. (laughs) This episode of Big Picture Science is Your Inner Tree. When accepting the 2021 Templeton Prize for her unrelenting efforts to connect humanity to a greater purpose, scientist and conservationist Jane Goodall stressed something on many people's minds, a need to chart a different course to ensure our survival and that of the other species on the planet. I hope that we are going to learn a new relationship with the natural world of which we are part and on which we depend for our very existence. Honestly, there's a window of time to effect change, but we have so damaged the planet in so many places that that window is closing. We must take action now. So what might that new relationship look like? Well, I guess we might begin in a forest environment where not incidentally, Dr. Goodall started her career. The fact that trees cooperate with one another might give us some insight into how to think about the natural world and our place in it. But if you're already familiar with the idea of a wood-wide web, that is, trees and fungi communicating underground through a vast network, well, you've already been introduced to the research of University of British Columbia forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. And, by the way, if you read Richard Power's novel The Overstory, well, one of those characters was inspired by her work in forest ecology. Dr. Samard's work contributes to a growing body of research describing how trees cooperate like families. But what she's discovered 
is at the center of the family. It's an individual, an older mother tree, upon which the saplings depend. She describes a key moment that set her upon her current line of research. I grew up in the old growth forests of the interior of British Columbia. And these are, you know, beautiful, iconic old growth full of cedars and hemlocks and white pines and um, intact ecosystems. And I became a forester and watched these forests be clear cut, become clear cut. And I saw that this connected place, (laughs) this place of relationship was being ripped apart. These relationships severed. And I saw, you know, when we planted these clear cuts back to these plantations of Douglas fir or lodgepole pine or spruce, you know, usually one species, um, that they were becoming infested with insects and pathogens and they were dying. And so I thought, what the heck are we doing? We're disconnecting this beautiful place. And so I set out on trying to understand what we were losing when we were clear cutting and planting these, these forests back. She tells that story and how it resolved and describes her research in a book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, that underscores the interdependence within ecosystems, including the symbiotic relationship between trees and their mycelia networks. So all of the trees all over the world, uh, including ours in the Pacific Northwest and Canada, they form this obligate mutualistic relationship with kinds of fungi. And mycorrhiza literally means fungus root in Latin. And it's about the symbiosis. It's where what the tree does is it provides photosynthate or energy to this fungus. And the fungus takes that energy and grows its body, basically its mycelium, through the soil, coating all the soil pores and soil particles and extracting nutrients and water from that soil. And then it delivers that back through its body to the tree and they do this trade, the photosynthate for these nutrients and water. And a lot of them connect tree to tree. Um, and so they're, they're like telephone lines that, that link the trees together. And these trees pass information and resources back and forth between each other. I mean, is that accidental or are they, you know, somehow... I mean, there's some reason that they're sending these materials, which would be useful to the first tree, to a second tree. Do trees have an altruistic uh, behavior here? I mean, I can hardly imagine. They definitely have agency in their behavior, meaning that they have control over their environment and they make decisions about what to do. And, And this is one way they do it. And so how we got at this is we did... I did hundreds of experiments with my graduate students um, and we manipulated trees by shading them, by fertilizing them, by watering them in different ways, all kinds and by injuring them, (laughs) by looking at whether they're related. And we found out, yeah, that this, these resources are moving across what we call source sink gradients in, in, (laughs) in biology, which means that it goes from trees or plants that are really big and rich in in those nutrients or carbon or water down a sort of like a concentration gradient to trees that are in need of those resources. So is it altruistic? Well, that that's an, another question. Um, I think that we don't need to invoke altruism. I think that these trees need each other. They grow in communities. They benefit from having a diversity of neighbors. And we know, you know, more and more research is showing that diversity matters. Um, and so to me, that that's good for them. You've talked famously about mother trees. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, what, what's a mother tree? They're, they're not the ones that are reproducing the trees. 
Right. So when we made this map of what the network looked like in the in the forest, this below ground network, we figured out that that the biggest, oldest trees were the most highly connected trees to all the other ones. Um, and it's it's easy to figure out why they're big. They have huge crowns. They have huge photosynthetic capacity. They're shoveling a lot of energy below ground. And so they have great big root systems with lots of fine roots. And so there's many, many points of contact with other trees. And so it turns out that they are the hubs of the forest. They're they're like the hubs of any network. They're like the big airports, like Chicago airport with all the little airports around it. You can think of it that way. How, how many other trees are connected to the mother tree? I mean, you know, roughly speaking, how many children does a mother tree typically have? Yeah, so in making one of our maps, one of the mother trees, one of these big old trees was connected to 80% of the other trees in the forest. And really all the trees are connected to each other in a sense in that there, you know, there might be lots of intermediate trees, but one tree will be connected through hops and skips and jumps to trees way across the forest, you know, hundreds of meters away. So, so this mother uh, tree, you know, does it have, if you will, favorite children? I mean, does it prioritize where the resources go? Yes, this is an incredible new discovery that we've made is that uh, these mother trees, when they shed their seeds and those seeds germinate around their crowns, they can recognize which ones are their own seeds versus other seeds that have come in from other trees. And they are connected to them through these vast net networks. So the seeds germinate, they produce little roots, um, they're called radicals. These roots become colonized by the massive network of the mother tree within a month and they start to benefit from that massive resource uptake capacity of the network. And at the same time, the mother tree starts transmitting carbon and water and nutrients to her own kin to help them survive better compared to strangers. And in this way, she's able to actually nurture the passage of her genes onto the next generations. My goodness. Well, that, well, that, that that's an incredible network. What, what happens if you were to go in, I mean, this is kind of unfortunate, but if you were to go into a forest and you chop down the mother tree, what are the consequences? Yeah, so these old trees, because they're old, they're host to the biggest diversity of fungi as well. Some of some fungi, some of these mycorrhizal fungi, of which you know there are thousands across the world. Even Douglas fir has five thousand species of mycorrhizal fungi associated with it at last count, um, and so. Old trees host old growth fungi as well. And so if you kill those old trees, you lose the old fungi. In fact, when you when you clear cut a forest, you reduce the richness of fungi from say 100 or 50 per acre down to a handful. And usually the ones that are left behind are what we call the weeds of the fungi. They're not these old growth fungi that have special jobs of getting nutrients from difficult or really old pieces of carbon or minerals in the soil. They're, they're hard to get at. So you need those old growth fungi to do that. All right. So you get rid of one species and you get rid of more than one species. Yes, absolutely. Are all the trees in a network necessarily the same species of tree? No, no. So you can have many species of trees connected together. Think of these mycorrhizal fungi. There's different kinds. Of course, there's many species, but we can group them into 
think of them as what scientists call functional groups. So one of those groups were, are specific to a single species of tree. Um, so they're species specific fungi. So Douglas fir has got a few species that only associates with Douglas fir, but most of the species associated with Douglas fir also colonize other species of trees in the forest. Those are called generalist fungi. And most forests have got a whole whack of these generalist fungi, and they connect many species of trees together. Okay, so they're, they're all connected together, but do they all connect with the mother tree? Uh, no, it's not quite like that. Um, so they're, they're connected to their neighbors. So, and there might not be a big old mother tree that's one of your nearest neighbors. And so you would be connected to that tree, but through a bunch of intermediaries. Well, I mean, once again, I am stunned by the fact that there is interspecies cooperation here, right? I mean, trees caring for one another. But I suppose, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it actually does benefit them because the chances of, I mean, it's the common good versus the individual good, perhaps. Yes. So they, they definitely benefit from having this variety of neighbors. Um, and in fact, we've done lots of, a lot of management <laughs> of forests in the world that illustrate to us what happens when we take these beautiful, diverse forests and reduce them down to a single species plantation. We see that they don't do very well. They don't capture as much carbon. They don't have as much biodiversity. They're not as productive. Um, and so it plays out right in front of our eyes that these communities, this diversity of community is extremely important. Okay. So, you know, the social life of trees, if you can call this the social life of trees, I mean, it has implications. What would you tell a lumbering company is the practical result from your, your research here? What should they be doing? Yeah. So setting aside old growth forests is hugely important. That doesn't mean that we're, we're not going to continue to live in and use and, and, uh, and benefit from forests. And that includes cutting some trees down. We're still going to have a forest industry, but it's, we're going to have to do it differently. Um, so that means focusing our cutting on forests that aren't really old, where we've already you know, compromised our carbon stocks and we've already lost biodiversity. We can continue to manage those forests and even increase them back to their uh, early status as you know, rich places. Um, but when we go in and harvest those forests, we need to change how we're doing it. Instead of taking everything, we we need to be leaving the big matriarchs behind because what those matriarchs do, those mother trees in the forest, is their seeds, which have seen, you know, past climates, they're highly resilient. They produce resilient children or offspring. And so they're going, they nurture the, the next generation. Then they also help protect carbon stocks in the ground. And they also continue to have provide homes for biodiversity. So we can take it, we can selectively log, but still keep these nuclei of the forest to, to help the next generations come along. And we can see this being played out on the world stage right now with global change and loss of biodiversity when we don't pay attention to that. Suzanne Simard, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Suzanne Samard is a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. She describes her work and the development of her ideas in the book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Well, Seth, I thought that was stunning, that idea that there is a central tree, a mother tree, who is coordinating the resources among trees and trees of different species 
within within the forest. I mean, talk about being connected. And then the question that you asked her, of course, is how would that affect our and how should that guide our forestry practices, our our business practices regarding the forest? Well, there's this assumption very often that the interests of the uh, forest industry, for example, and the ecologists or people concerned about the environment are, you know, it's just incongruent that they're completely separate. But that's not true. She points out that if you really want to do better by forestry, then, you know, you ought to pay attention to what we've learned about how trees interconnect and the necessity of not having a monoculture stand. So uh, it sounds to me that there's quite a bit of alignment there. And, and the other thing is, I mean, it just struck me, we all like trees. I don't know anybody who doesn't like trees, right? I mean, you get a backyard, if you have enough of a backyard, you put trees in it, you want trees in it, you want views of nature, right? And I, I figure it's just because we evolved in trees. You know, the fact that we have opposable thumbs, that's because our history is in trees. You know, is it an inherent beauty that trees have, or is it because we're looking back into our very deep past? When kicking off the UN Biodiversity Conference, its executive secretary echoed calls for humans to, well, get their act together and save the planet. It is time. It is time for us all to come together in solidarity and cooperation, to care for each other and for the planet on which we live. It is time for nature. Next, why humans keep insisting that nature is out there, something they exist outside of. Well, we're going inside to consider your inner tree on Big Picture Science. When the UN climate conference got underway in Glasgow, the stakes could not have been higher. That's also true for the UN Biodiversity Conference that preceded it by two weeks. Animal and plant species loss is happening faster than at any time in the last 10 million years. And yet the issue of conserving biodiversity has not become a part of our consciousness the way climate change has. In her opening remarks before the October 2021 conference, UN Biodiversity Leader Elizabeth Maruma Mremma described a critically important point about biodiversity. We need to take time for nature. Biodiversity is the foundation of human health and a pillar for resilience and intergenerational equity. Its loss presents a fundamental risk to the health and, and stable ecosystem that sustain all aspects of our societies. We've been talking about how saving species and our planet begins with foraging a new relationship with nature that acknowledges our interdependence. And who knows more about ecosystem interdependence than an ecologist? I'm Carl Safina. I'm an author and ecologist. I'm also the founder of a little not-for-profit group called the Safina Center and the endowed professor for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University. 
Dr. Safina suggests that when it comes to protecting Earth's diversity, one place he'd like to start is with the language we use to describe it. The way that we talk about some of these problems reflects some of our disconnectedness from them. For instance, just the word biodiversity. With the exact same number of syllables, you could call it what it is, living diversity. And then people might understand something about it right at the beginning. But when you say biodiversity, it doesn't sound like anything to anybody. And, and that's a problem because that's how it's spoken of. That's what the conference is called. I mean, it doesn't communicate outside the small circle of people who know what they're already talking about. Another example for all you animals listening out there. If you call everything else animals and you call us humans or people, that simply reinforces the story that is at the fundamental root of all these problems. The idea that we're separate, the idea that we're the only things that matter, the idea that we don't really need anything else, the idea that we're not related to anything. And, and many people would say, well, people are not animals. And that's simply not correct. People are animals. We're talking about things being intertwined in this episode. Here's another, climate change and species loss. As global temperatures rise, habitats drift or disappear, and if wildlife can't adapt, it dies. Deforestation and clearing land for agriculture are also big contributors to habitat loss. But if the argument that other species on Earth have a right to live doesn't prompt conservation, well, maybe this will. The loss of biodiversity not only threatens the survival of their ecosystems, but also our own. So that I could ask Dr. Safina why we don't take our interconnectedness to heart, I decided to connect with him in person at the Safina Center in Setauket, New York. And naturally, we sat outside. I'd like to explore our relationship with nature. I know that that is a very general goal. I have a very good relationship with you do. How nature, is your relationship with nature these days? It's, it's good. We're talking. <laughs> good. Um, well, some humans, but not all, think of themselves as existing somehow outside of nature. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could remind us in what way that we are a part of nature. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, most of us are Westerners. We, we mostly come from European culture and baked into our religious and philosophical backgrounds is the belief that we are outside of the rest of nature. The rest of nature is just basically delivered to us as a, a, big, a big cardboard carton of resources waiting for us on our front step and, uh, you know, and food. That's what nature is. And then the other thing is that we now are mostly so urbanized and suburbanized that most of us don't really see nature as a thing happening around us. We see it as a, a thing that is uh, set aside in certain places. So, you know, nature might be in a park or you might go to Yellowstone to see nature the way that you go to the cereal aisle for cornflakes. Of course, the reality is, you know, try not to breathe for four minutes and you'll see how connected to the world we really are. Are we also connected to other species? Well, we are connected to other species in various ways. For one thing, we're all one living family. Life seems to have happened one time on Earth and proliferated from that root. So we are all literally organically related to each other. We are 
heavily reliant on on many species, mostly the species we say we don't like, like insects and fungi. And there are a lot of other species that we're not really reliant on. They just happen to live here. They're of the world as much as we are of the world. And we don't really need them. Like elephants, for instance, we don't really need elephants. The entire Western Hemisphere has no elephants anymore. It did. It doesn't anymore. And uh, it, I think, you know, that experiment is done. We, we simply don't need elephants. But a world without elephants is an impoverished world. And elephants need us. Because if we don't care about them at this point in history, we will just continue to overtake and roll over them and they will be gone like a lot of other things are going. And of course, even sitting outside in this beautiful wooded area, we can still hear traffic, which reminds us all of just how close civilization is, even when we try to get away from it. Well, you know, in the in the lower United States, the farthest you can get from any road is 20 miles. That's the distance a pigeon can fly in 20 minutes. That's as far from a road as you can get. I like to talk about the interconnectedness, the idea of interdependence and the interconnectedness of species within ecosystems. And the analogy is a tapestry ecosystems. And the disappearance of any one animal is like pulling a thread on the tapestry. And if we lose too many species, the tapestry unravels. Now, I'm not sure if that analogy works for you. It, uh, that analogy very much works for It me. works for you. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you could help us understand what the threads are that hold an ecosystem together. And I guess what I'm really looking for is a description of what it means to be interdependent within that tapestry of species. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if we're going to try to work with the tapestry analogy, a tapestry is a series of pictures and the pictures are made out of threads so we could think of big pictures like the atmosphere plants water animals within all of those things there are smaller pictures you know within animals there are dogs well there are mammals there are birds there are reptiles there are on and on and each species you could say is a thread if you want to look at it that way we we do tend to think of species as an inventory. We can list species, but species are relationships. They cannot exist outside of their context of relationships, and the context is what makes species happen. Species evolve into niches that are series and webworks of relationships. So really just talking about a species is a thread is already getting away from the reality of the picture. A species is relationships. It's a node in relationships. And if you pull a node out of relationships, the relationships break. You don't just lose a thread. You lose the relationships that are holding the thread in place. Can you give us a, an example, a specific example? Uh, well, I, I mean, any any species is a specific example. I mean, if you take uh, one of the species I studied, let's say uh, the seabirds that are called terns. The terns cannot exist unless the fish exists. The terns have a relationship with the fish. They eat small fish. They also rely on big fish to chase small fish up to the surface because the big fish are also eating the same fish. 
And, you know, without that little relationship, there's, there's not room in the world for something called a turn. And, and with that relationship, there's this opportunity for a bird that wasn't a turn to evolve into something that is a turn. All of these things at every level are relationships. And nothing can happen without, A, all of those relationships causing things to happen, and B, every living thing is all of the past history of life, which is shown among many other ways in the fact that, let's just look at, you know, mammals. All mammals have basically the same skeleton. They all have the same organs. They have the same hormones. What's different basically is the shape of those things, and they're shaped to exploit different ways of making a living. So even whales in their front flippers, they have all the finger bones that we have in our hands. They're the same bones. We think they're so different and that they evolved separately so many millions of years ago, and that's true. But in the history of life, tens of millions of years ago was a very short time ago. And, and all of these aspects were already there, and they're not really changed. They're just tweaked. They're tweaked into different shapes for different purposes. And all of that stuff is completely relational. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the evolutionary uh, relationships that we have along with... Along with the ecological relationships. So the evolutionary relationships are main mainly in time, and the ecological ones are mainly in space or in the moment. When, when biologists and ecologists talk about the possibility of some of those threads unraveling, and I... Uh, and talk about something called ecosystem collapse. Is that well, certainly happening in, it is in happening. a lot of places? I mean, for instance, the the incredible decline of insects is causing there to be no pollinators in some places, a dearth of pollinators in many places, a real dearth of food for things like bats and certain birds that uh, hunt flying insects that are just nosediving in numbers. That All of these things that were very, very abundant when I was a kid. I mean, around here in the summer, if you look at a street light, when, when I was young, the street light would have a cloud of moths around it and there would be bats dipping through every little while. And you don't and, see that And you don't see much. any insects around the street lights most of the time at all. There are very few wild mice in this neighborhood compared to another neighborhood I'm really well acquainted with. And so screech owls, which are abundant in a lot of suburbs, are very, very rare in this neighborhood. And when they show up, they can't seem to hang on. There doesn't seem to be enough food here for them. So like I'm saying, everything is a web of relationships. It's not an inventory of species. Mm -hmm. Climate trends are not really improving, and the loss of living things is not generally being stemmed, although there are fantastic successes in turnarounds of species that seem doomed because some people really dug in on those things. For example, and osprey here on Long Island, they were When saved. I was in high school, there were basically no ospreys at all left. They were raising, there were two or three pairs left. They were aging out. They were raising zero chicks. Now there are six osprey nests within a mile of my house. That's because six people on Long Island got together, formed a group, sued to stop the spraying of DDT. 
they won locally and they won nationally. And that allowed ospreys, peregrine falcons, and bald eagles, which were all about to vanish, to slowly recover over the decades. That's great, and that's very instructive about the fact that it works. It even works when things are dire if you want it to, but you have to want it to. You have to want to reverse the things that have caused bird populations to decline by a third in about the same time since I was in high school, or you know, populations of all the large African animals that we love so much have declined 70 or 80 percent during my lifetime, or the Amazon rainforest, which was burning last year in many places, was a vast untouched wilderness when I was young. So the trends, you know, the Amazon is not expanding, it's contracting, it's being whittled up. So the trends are not being reversed across a broad front. And I, I think that's a fact of the matter. Do you feel that you are then, as an ecologist and conservationist, experiencing grief on a daily basis? I mean, is that a, of an emotion? Of course. I, how could an ecologist not experience grief on a daily basis? <laughs> I mean, it's almost a synonym. And certainly loss and grief are predominant themes when we talk about um, what we are losing in the, in the natural world. But can you talk about some of the, the pleasures of connecting with the natural world and the pleasures that are found there? Okay, sure. Well, the, the rest of the living world around us is just a source of continual beauty. And, uh, you know, beauty is what makes life worth all the effort it takes and all the time it takes. And uh, there's a lot of beauty in nature and in being connected in various ways. It's an overused word, connected, you know, but... I've always liked to be close around wild animals uh, in all kinds of different ways. I, I used to raise pigeons, then I, I got into falconry and I used to train hawks. I did, uh, I did rehab of uh, injured and orphaned wildlife and I tried to bring a little comfort and compassion and fix up some animals and you you know you get to, you, when you're interacting one-on-one uh, -on -one at close range you start to see a lot of the awareness and the capacities they have and some of the emotions they have you know for instance we we raised an orphan screech owl two years ago she's been free flying for two years she's got a mate she's raised two broods of chicks and she still will come to my hand. Literally to Literally, your hand. Literally, yes. Mm -hmm. It's totally magical. But it's not because she's the only owl with that capacity. It's because she's the only one in which I discovered that capacity because of the relationship we had. What does the screech of a screech owl sound like? Can you describe it? They don't really screech. What do they do? They go, um, let me see if I can do it. <laughs> yeah, now, now my dog Katie is answering. It's impressive. I, it's all ways of trying to maintain my connections instead of losing them. Which, which dog is this? Her name is Chula. Chula just put her paw in my hand. Yes. Hi there. She's, she's saying strange. hi. <laughs> Chula makes more direct eye contact than any other dog I've ever known. You want to say something? She's not terribly vocal. <laughs> Carl Safina, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us. Well, it's always a great pleasure to speak with you.
ecologist and MacArthur Fellow, founding president of the Safina Center, and a professor at Stony Brook University, Carl Safina, is the author of Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. So let's roll up our sleeves and roll out our trunks and get something done. That is, if putting the endangered Asian elephant to work is a way to help the elephants and their habitat survive. These communities that do this might have a lot of insight into how to conserve and even revive this species over the rest of the century. That's next. We're exploring new relationships with the natural environment that might help save it. And we're looking at your inner tree on Big Picture Science. As leaders discuss how international agreements might help conserve the world's biodiversity, there are some local efforts to find ways to save endangered species. Some have been successful, as Dr. Safina said, such as banning the use of DDT that allowed populations of bald eagles and osprey, the Long Island bird that he never saw while growing up, rebound. Another example, an international ban on hunting which, along with conservation efforts, allowed Pacific Ocean sea otters to make a comeback. Sometimes just protecting an animal's habitat and getting out of the way to let nature do its thing is all we need. Life has a way of coming back. But it's not easy to get out of the way. Humans and non-human animals are often competing for the very same patches of habitat. And in those cases, saving animals, even endangered species, may mean striking a compromise. Endangered animal species, and and, uh, the Asian elephants are certainly an example of that, there's as few as 40,000 left in the world, have a right to continue to exist past the end of uh, this century. And I think that these communities that are trying to work with elephants in order to generate forms of economic value that help to keep the forest in place offer a lot of really valuable insights for how to do that. About 9,000 of those Asian elephants today are engaged in transportation or other forms of labor in a forested mountainous region between Myanmar and Northeast India, for example, the elephants help locals haul timber for teak harvesting. Each is paired with a caretaker rider called a mahout. Jacob Shell, a geographer at Temple University, explores these elephant-human working relationships in his book, The Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants. The work model is not without controversy, though. The Asian elephants are taken from the wild to be put to work, and their human caretakers are sometimes harsh, even abusive. But many are also loving, and the elephants can roam freely when the workday is done. However imperfect, Dr. Shell says that these partnerships may be a model for future conservation upon which the survival of the Asian elephant depends. Elephants, the Asian elephants in particular, ultimately need to have the forest in order to uh, survive. Uh, if they don't have the forest, I, I, I think it's very doubtful that they'll be able to survive. So what would be their job description? Why are they being captured anyhow? And what makes them good for the kind of work they do anyhow? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's that kind of thing that sort of drew me into the topic in the first place. Um, these aren't elephants that are doing tricks like in circuses. Uh, these aren't elephants who are there to 
entertain or charm tourists, though that can be uh, a really positive thing under certain uh, circumstances anyway. Uh, these elephants are doing forms of labor on behalf of human communities that are sort of oriented towards the forest and the resources of the forest in areas that are really difficult for wheeled motorized vehicles to get to. So if you want to get food or uh, various other kinds of cargo, maybe medicine, maybe clothing, etc., across uh, a very sort of difficult, maybe uh, forested mountain range in these very uh, monsoon-intensive areas. Due to the weather conditions, due to the uh, extreme difficulties of moving across the forest, it's very hard to get uh, jeeps or other kinds of uh, motor vehicles across that area. The elephants are really in their element, moving across this environment. Uh, in some ways, they're kind of evolved to be there, though their evolution is a little bit more complicated than that as well. And then in addition to that, that sort of transportation work, they're also doing a lot of sort of small-scale logging work. And the logs themselves, it's uh, teak is one of the most valuable timber commodities from that area, though other kinds of timber are logged in this way as well, also tend to be in areas that are really hard to access by automobile or by logging truck. And both of those kinds of work that elephants are doing in the forest in these areas in northern Myanmar or Burma and also in northeast India, uh, it's a history that goes um, centuries back, uh, if not thousands of years. Well, unlike uh, machinery, they've had millions of years to, uh, if you will, be engineered by evolution to, to be appropriate for this kind of a landscape. Let, let's uh, consider the day in the life of a working elephant. I mean, yeah, they wake up or whatever. I, I don't know if they wake up, but uh, they, they get retrieved by the mahouts. And then, uh-huh. uh, you know, they work uh, during the day and then they're released into the surrounding forests in the afternoons and evening. Um why is that? I mean, why don't they just tie them up to a hitching post? Yeah, that's a great question. And that that's actually really crucial to um, another thing that drew me into the topic and persuaded me as I was doing the research that these communities that do this might have a lot of insight into how to conserve and even revive this species over the rest of the century. They're letting their work elephants into the surrounding forest each night, in part because each elephant requires so much food over the course of the day. That could be bamboo leaves or vines or creepers or things like that, many, many hundreds of pounds, that for a human to gather all the food per elephant becomes an inefficient source of extra labor to have to add into just keeping the elephant around. It's not economically worth it. It makes more sense to release the elephant into the forest each night and let the elephant find his or her own food. In addition to which, the elephant will tend to mate with wild elephant herds that are passing through the area, or for that matter, with each other. And this is really uh, essential for how this particular human-animal relationship has been able to sustain itself. Elephants are very kind of stubbornly hesitant maters or breeders, especially if they're inside of environments that they sense are not in their control. They've been enclosed in some way, maybe inside of a zoo or even inside of a tourist park. They tend not to like to mate with each other under these circumstances. Maybe it's like their own personal revolt against the way in which they've lost a sense of sovereignty over their lives. By contrast, when they're released into the sort of open forest on a nightly basis this way, the females tend to get pregnant. Uh, The males are presumably making some of the wild female elephants pregnant. And so in this way, it's been suggested that work elephants actually reproduce at uh, somewhat over twice the rate of zoo elephants, to give you an idea of how important that is from the standpoint of conserving the Asian elephant species. Now, Jacob, these elephants are obviously good at carrying teak 
timbers around, putting them in trucks or wherever. But they're more than just oversized mules. They show ingenuity. And to begin with, well, they can understand language. The Mahouts give them instructions. Uh, I think you write that they have a vocabulary that's somewhere between 35 and 100 words, but it could be 35 or 100 words in various languages, and they can learn several mm-hmm. of them. I, you know, I think that, that beats your average cat, doesn't it? I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, though I hate to dismiss the intelligence of these other animals. Um, mules can be very intelligent, and I've, I've actually written about them a bit in some other work of mine. Okay. Um, but with elephant intelligence, yeah, I mean, they're extraordinarily uh, intelligent animals. And what's so remarkable with Asian elephants is that they're able to do these very cognitively demanding, complex types of work. Complex works that really oftentimes require real kind of problem-solving skills, but they're capable of doing it without having been selectively bred to do it. It would be kind of like if you captured a wolf out of the wild, like out of northern Alaska or something, and you trained it for a year or two, and then you'd expect that wolf to suddenly be a bomb-sniffing dog or a seeing-eye dog. It's like we probably wouldn't be able to do that. With dogs, we expect to sort of have hundreds of generations of selective breeding in order to kind of refine and hone those kinds of cognitive skills, whereas elephants seem to be able to kind of adjust to those kinds of requirements um, at an individual level. So that tells us that they're extremely intelligent. Well, clearly they have a lot of that, even creative intelligence. Any idea why this might be, Jacob? I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, what's in it for elephants, after all? I mean, they're big. They don't need to be too smart just to avoid predators. So why are they smart? That's a good question. Yeah, why are elephants so smart? Why are, why are whales so smart? I, I don't know exactly why some of these other big mammals would have evolved or developed these particular forms of intelligence that we can sort of resonate with. We can, we can admire the problem-solving value of them. Um, I do have some ideas about why Asian elephants' intelligence wound up being sort of uniquely valuable for humans, which I think has to do with this sort of long historical process over the course of several thousands of years of Asian elephants gradually being pushed away from the big river valleys of South and East Asia into the mountains or into the hills, the, the foothills of the mountains, as these sort of big agricultural civilizations were developing in those river valleys. And simultaneously with this, you actually have certain human cultures who are also fleeing the river valleys because they don't want to be absorbed into these agricultural kingdoms. So they're also going into the forested hills. And I think the particular way in which Asian elephants develop some skills that are uniquely useful for those kind of escaped groups of humans, I think that has a lot to do with why Asian elephants kind of think about things uh, the way they do and have these particular cognitive and also physical skills. Well, then finally, Jacob, what is your take on the future here? Is my teak furniture 20 years from now, say, still going to be a product of elephant labor? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, my feeling about the logging aspect of uh, the work that these work elephants are doing probably needs to be transitioned away from. Uh, as a model of elephant-based work, and that the main kind of value that elephants can bring to the kind of uh, the human economic landscape is the transportation function which they've been involved with, and in particular transportation during floods. This is sort of the the argument that the book ultimately uh, leads up to in the last chapter, which is the the kind of the future-oriented chapter of the discussion. In both rural and urban environments in South and Southeast Asia and elsewhere in the world, you have this intense flooding which comes along creating these semi-washed-over landscapes that 
Motor vehicles have trouble moving across. Boats have trouble moving across because the water's too shallow and full of debris. There are some interesting examples of this which have actually happened. Uh, there was the huge tsunami which happened at the end of the 2004. And at the end of the tsunami, during the aftermath, eight Asian elephants were actually brought in from the Sumatran forest interior to assist in uh, flood relief and logistics, uh, helping people get to their ruined homes and retrieve things and things like this. Um, in a lot of ways, this particular example showed some limits of the idea. The, the flood water was too toxic for the elephants, uh, though veterinarians on site were able to nurse them back to health and things like that. But I think for a, a, a sort of a future possibility, maybe in a city that could flood more cleanly because it's wealthier and has the infrastructure to do that, I think there's a lot of promise and potential in the idea of putting elephants to work doing uh, flood relief for human beings. Jacob Schell, thanks so very much for speaking with us. I'm delighted to have talked with you. Jacob Schell is a professor of geography and urban studies at Temple University. He is the author of Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants. Well, Seth, what is the big picture the first thing is to recognize there's a problem, I suppose, and that is that things are you know, way out of balance. We heard that a couple of times, and we have to reestablish that balance, or we're going to be in real, real trouble. It isn't just an aesthetic problem. It's a very, very practical problem. And if you listen to Carl Safina, he makes the argument that other species have a right to exist just because we are sharing this planet with them. And he said something to me that I didn't make it into that interview, which is, I asked him a question about making room for other animals, and he said, it's not making room, it's leaving room for other animals. They were here first, they, or they were here with us. We want to leave room for them. You know, we're equals on this planet. You know, Molly, in terms of big picture here, there's such a thing in physics and chemistry as equilibrium, you know. If you leave any system alone long enough, it comes to an equilibrium, right, where things don't change very much. And that's what biology on this planet always is. It's always in a state of semi-equilibrium. But we've disturbed that in the last century, and, uh, you know, it's causing trouble. This show is made possible thanks to the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, investigates the multitude of species in extreme environments here on Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the big questions around protecting life's diversity of species on the occasion of the UN Biodiversity and Climate Change Summits, is called Your Inner Tree. 